Hey everybody, I want to talk about a product and platform that I absolutely love and our latest sponsor, Interseller, the prospecting and outreach platform of choice for recruiters and sellers. Whether you're doubling down on business development or recruiting talent, Interseller does all the heavy lifting of finding contact data, automating the email and follow-up process, and syncs all that rich data into 20-plus CRM and ATS platforms. Reach out now and get going on a two-week free trial and let them know you heard about it from Adam on the podcast today. Check out the link on the website. Appreciate it. Welcome to the podcast, where we introduce you to incredible humans who share their journeys with the mission to inspire you to harness your own inner tenacity to drive your life and career forward. And now, your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. We're bringing the best in the brightest world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today is Chris Ramanini, CEO and co-founder of Fireflies.ai. Chris is a UPenn grad and formerly one of the youngest project managers at a little company called Microsoft. And Fireflies, Fireflies is an AI voice assist that helps transcribe, take notes, and complete actions during meetings. I think I'm going to have to check that out. I kind of need it. And Chris launched Fireflies to an overwhelming demand and success in early 2020. At a time, we could certainly use all the assistance we could get as we figured out this new way of working together. So let's hear more about Chris's story and how he got off the ground. Let's get into it. Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Adam. Really excited to be here. And thanks for having me on. Awesome. And thank you so much for joining me. And as we're talking about, you know, before we hit record, I I love to hit the rewind button. I love to go back into my guest journeys and your story. um, You made strides pretty early, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley in that ecosystem. What were some of your earliest memories of inspiration in, in the startup world? I'd love to hear, you know, where that first spark came from. Yeah, so growing up around a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of startups, uh, as a kid, that was just something commonplace. You'd hear about Facebook coming out in the backyard, uh, hear about Dropbox becoming really big. So these are all tools uh, that we would use every single day. And that was something that we were quite surprised to to just see and use and, uh, you know, get overwhelming excitement around whether that was in high school or even college. Um, but I think, you know, growing up, I actually personally didn't think I was going to go into the technology field. Um, I was going into the medical route. So that was, was was that an influence of your parents? I mean, I love to, I love to kind of like, were your, were your parents entrepreneurs? May I ask what what were their professions? Yeah. So on my father's side, there's definitely entrepreneurs in the film business, uh, back in India and uh and they were doing other businesses as well real estate film a lot of these different things on my mom's side there's a lot of doctors like my grandfather's a doctor my uncle's a doctor several cousins are doctors so it was just like that was something that um we grew up with thinking you were going to pick one or the other right so uh, you're going to pick engineering and entrepreneurship or you're going to pick um medicine and i felt like i wanted to do something in the medical field Um, and as I went through my first semester of college, I realized, you know, the amount of impact that you can have in technology is massive. And how can you touch the lives of many, many people, right? That's when all these crazy apps were coming out. You press a button, you get food delivered to you, you press a button, you get a car coming to you. And I said, like, I want to build something that can touch a lot of people. And that actually pushed me towards engineering and entrepreneurship. 
And, and, and even going back to your, you know, your youth a little bit, did you, were you entrepreneurial as a kid? Did you, you know, sell, did you do like a, it sounds so old school when I say, do you have a paper route, right? Like who the fuck is that? Like part of my French, right? Like, but like, you know, I, I visioned the kid on the bike and, and now I'm dating myself. You ever see it? Remember that game paper boy? I mean, I don't know how old yeah. you are. Right. And, and you would have to throw the papers and break the windows and everything. I'm going to actually have yeah. to find one of those simulator games, by the way, after this call and see if I could play Paperboy because I'm kind of jonesing. But <laughs> I go on a rant. Did you have any entrepreneurial kind of, you know, um, activities when you were younger? Honestly, growing up, it was limited. Uh, it was more of playing sports and being very, um, you know, competitive and athletics and education, you know, studying, like it was more of that. But there were a few instances growing up, a few childhood things that made me realize uh, these are very interesting um, opportunities. One is um, I used to play this game as a kid growing up called Age of Empires, and it was an absolute like favorite. Like until then, uh, I didn't really think about business, right? Like it was actually funny. That game inspired me to say like, hey, I might not be that bad at business. And so for those that don't know, Age yeah, of Empires, yeah, Age of Empires is this real-time strategy game where you start out with very minimal resources and your opponent is on the other side of the map. They're starting out with minimal resources. It's usually wood, gold, food. And you have to build an entire empire within 20 minutes. And then you have to go and take over your enemy's base mm -hmm. or your uh, opponent's base. And so you're managing an economy. You're managing a military. You are uh, building constructions. You're fortifying. And so you're like learning all of this process management or learning to like manage all of these different things and how to optimize it. And there's a real math and science to the thing. And I learned that you know, much later in life, uh, when I took up the game again in, in my free time. How so, did you, how did you, sorry, how did you perform, you know, when you picked the game back up versus when you were, when you were younger, did you like oh, have all those crazy new thoughts and strategies? Like shit, if I knew what I knew now back then, how much more you would have dominated? Yeah. During the <laughs> pandemic, uh, I got together with a bunch of my, uh, old college friends and high school friends that used to play this and we would like, you know, the only way you can socialize during the pandemic was hop on like a Zoom call and then play the game in the background. We'd have our headsets on um, and we'd play and I would like realize, OK, how do I need to win? So I would like learn about strategy and how you uh, do resource management. How do you time certain things? You need to hit things by a certain period in time. And so, yeah, when I was a kid, I was just playing for fun and I loved history. So um, you can it. go through all these historical campaigns of like the Mongols or the Persians. And I love the history behind uh, the medieval history. So that's the reason I played it back then. And now it's like, wow, there's so much math and timing involved. Um, it, it's almost like a brain teaser or it just helps. It's like a warm up exercise before I have to go deal with the real world stuff. Yeah. Right. Like, it's like your batting practice. Work. Yeah, it is. It is very exciting. It keeps me sharp uh, when I go into business. So let me let me ask you this. You're a West Coast kid. Why decide to go East Coast to UPenn? Yeah. So at that time, uh, I was actually thinking, OK, if I'm not going to do medicine, what's another opportunity? Like you're, you're really, to be honest, looking at lucrative fields at that time, like law, legal, finance. So right. when I went to Penn, the I said, OK, I'm not going to be a doctor. So let me go into finance and let's see what people are doing in private equity and uh, Wall Street. And I didn't want to run a business by just looking at, um, you know, the financial numbers at the top. I wanted to be operational, right? So a lot of these, like to be an investor, you're just looking at metrics and saying, mm -hmm. okay, what do I cut? What do I buy? Uh, but I wanted to actually go in and roll up my sleeves and actually help people and build something. And that was, I'm very much a product person. So as a product person, engineer, designer, like building things with my own hands, um, 
so I ended up, even though I went there, I ended up coming back to the West Coast. I went to um, Microsoft. Yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna jump we're gonna jump into Microsoft in a moment there. But like, let's talk, you know, vibes. You know, in in college, I mean, even when I was in school, you know, there was still like that very entrepreneurial spirit, even more so um, these days. Was it was there a difference, like, like vibe wise, like entrepreneurial vibe wise, that you had in Spades being on the West Coast, and now you're at UPenn? You know, you're here on the East Coast. How did that affect you or did it not at all? That's a great question because there was thing, right? Like it's a real, it's, it's a real, real, it's a real difference for sure. Uh, at Penn, there was entrepreneurship on campus, but it was less technology based and it's more like technology enabled. Hmm. So they were trying to solve like brick and mortar problems or uh, solving problems and applying technology uh, to, to do those sort of things. So like there were some companies that were doing analytics in stores, right? To help like store owners, uh, track their merchandise. Whereas in the West Coast, you're like looking at like virtualization software, VMs, um, you know, machine learning, like deep learning, a lot of hard tech, deep tech. Uh, that was the biggest difference. But 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 would you go? Am I? Can I go out on a limb and say how important that perspective was to you to be a well-rounded entrepreneur and operator? I think I've seen like entrepreneurship being respected and valued on the East Coast because so many people were in finance and I was this one like tech guy that was interested in entrepreneurship. So I stood out in the crowd and I got to be on a lot of these groups that I was clubs that I was part of um, and like departments that I was able to like run inside these clubs. Like I was like the go-to entrepreneur. Like how do we take this and how do we scale it up? Okay, let's go talk to Krish. He'll know how to do this. We're doing this operation. So a lot of kids from Wharton, great like you know they have great business ideas but then you need to add the technology part in order to operations everything is a technology business so yeah i mean so you found yourself with a with you know your 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 tool your your tool belt was growing your tool belt was growing with all these pieces in it so you you graduate and you have these thoughts and why microsoft you know was that a target for you and tell us a little bit about the for those who don't know tell us a little bit about the the application and interview process because i love when i talk to people in any kind of you know (laughs) mang now it's not mang it's not fang and getting the mang companies um, yeah. pull back the curtain. Tell us a little bit about that journey. Some of the, uh, tricks of the trade to get in and, and, and how'd you, how'd you do it? Yeah. At the time I had a few other offers and I wasn't really keen on going to Seattle. I wanted to go back to California and I had a return offer at, a uh, another technology company uh, that I had interned at mm-hmm. in, uh, Silicon Valley. I would have been right back home. And so Seattle wasn't on the top of my list, but the Microsoft interview was very exciting. I remember, um, I went on campus, just like all these students during a campus recruiting fair, went, talked to one of the uh, uh, product managers from Microsoft that was there. uh, And then he said, yeah, you seem interesting. Um, And he took my resume. And then later I got a call up saying, hey, you got selected for the on-campus interview at Penn. And uh, yeah, I had like a midterm and then I didn't really have a chance to prepare. I went in on the spot and uh, we had to do a design uh, ex, uh, experience, right? So you, they're asking some coding questions and then they're asking you to do a design problem. So that was on the spot. This was a senior principal person, um, on, on Penn campus that luckily that went well. And then the recruiter reaches out saying, Hey, we'd like to fly you into Seattle. Um, and we'd like to have you, uh, do an on-campus interview. I'm like, you know, I'm not really sure if I'm even going to go here, so I'm not going to prepare. I'm just going to go have fun. Uh, they are flying me out there. So why not? Right. That, wow. that was the mindset. 
it was amazing, right? Like right from the airport, they had uh, someone with a sign, like pick you up, like a driver. Make you feel good, experience. Make you feel good, yeah. And then they take you to a really nice uh, hotel, great views, amazing food. And just the entire experience was like, wow, this feels like vacation. Um, And then came... Yeah. The interview day, right? The they next fatten day. you up before they they take you ready <laughs> for the kill, right? Yeah, <laughs> they and make you feel comfortable. It's part of the game. See, I can handle it. That interview day was very, very intense because I was like uh, this undergrad student. I was twenty years old at that time, um, and then for whatever reason, that cohort that I was interviewing for the product manager role, um, there were all of these MBA students, business school students. You got people from Stanford, Harvard. Yeah. Um, there were like I think twelve people, and I was Real like competition. This yeah, so usually I thought I would be competing with other fellow undergrads, but I was competing with MBA business school students. Um, and that was really interesting. So I'm like, I hope I'm interviewing for the right thing. Am uh, I in the right room here? Yeah, I thought, I was, am I in the right room? And so the first interview went uh, really well because uh, it was actually like, they're like, okay, we get it. You, you solve all these product stuff, design stuff, you know your tech stuff. For this question, I want you to help design something that's completely non-technical right like something that has nothing to do with software they want to see how your brain works yeah and i was like oh wow and that was very interesting and so i was thinking about all my experiences i remember growing up um being in like the family when i'd go to india for vacation uh like the film business like how film distribution happened and how film production happened and how people pick movies it's very different from the u.s because usually you have a single producer they're financing all this and you know, a lot of careers and lives are dependent on that movie going out. So I talked about that process and how you can de-risk uh, film su- uh, success, like maybe building an algorithm to find, um, you know, the best script, right? So like it was completely uh, off the wall. And, and that you was just pulled really- it out of your ass. Like you literally just pulled <laughs> it out of thin air, right? Well, I said like, let's start with the problem that a lot of these people, because they're spending years making these movies and then these movies aren't going to be successful these producers are going to run dry or, um, you know, a lot of people are going to lose jobs. And how do you increase in an industry where there's a success rate is like three to 4% or, you know, 10% for a film, how do you increase the odds of it? And how do you create a successful, um, engine? So I remember re- reading about Pixar and, you know, Pixar's made mm-hmm. fantastic movies and there's a formula behind it. Yeah. There's, there's a f- some formula around it. And how do you build that process? And it was like, just able to show that that, that went really well. And the next, you know, couple rounds went by, like there was like five interviews, I believe that day. Um, after my fourth interview, because uh, each interview goes higher and higher up the food chain um, or, or the ladder. And after my fourth interview, I'm like, ah, oh, you know what? This is pretty fun. I'm actually having fun with these things. I'm like, you know, I'm thinking on the spot and th- that's the whole goal. Can you think on the spot? Um, are you analytical? And then for the last interview, uh, they said, hey, we have a VP that was just about to go to lunch. Uh he wants to talk to you. And I'm like, okay, like, why am I getting a different interview? That's interesting. So they actually pulled me into a meeting and I had no idea how high this person was. Mm-hmm. They're like some exec, right? And later I looked him up and he was like this VP, very high up. And uh, he wasn't even on the interview circuit. He was just like, hey, um, I have some free time and tell me if there's someone that's interesting. They so want to re- see what you're about, right? Yeah. And so we went through it. We were talking now from my, all my other interviews were very like technical, low down where you, you're building, designing products to this one is about like, okay, uh, Microsoft has a new CEO. So at that time, Satya became a CEO and we're thinking about these bigger divisions. Um, and so, and I had done some research, uh, under, understanding the different things, like how Azure was doing, how Office was doing, and uh, they had just moved to this like subscription model. They're building this like subscription industry versus, you know, selling, you know, CDs and uh 
how do you build a recurring business? And so I was kind of talking about like cloud and collaboration software uh, and like what it takes to like compete with Apple and a lot of these other other products out there and what is the unique advantage that Microsoft has in the enterprise. Again, this was a 20-year-old kid literally like from mm -hmm. the knowledge I had. And I was just talking to this exec and uh, he said, you know what, that was actually really good. And um, they actually pulled me in uh, because they said you were doing awesome and they wanted me to talk to you. They said, you got to talk to this kid. And that was a lot of relief because I thought I was in trouble. Like, was that was time. that more of a casual conversation? Like just you and I, like you and I just chatting right now, like versus a, a structured interview? It started off as a structured interview. And then he said, like, let's set that set aside and let's have just a conversation. Like, you know, we're yeah. working together on this. Like, and it was like, because, you know, That's this is a VP, life. he's going to talk high level, right? So that was very interesting. Um, and then, yeah, I got a call back uh, a week later saying we'd really love to have you. And I was like, you know, I want to go back to California, um, took the decision, gave it, they gave a great offer and a team that I was really interested in. Um, so I ended up saying yes. And I went to Seattle. That's I, and I love you sharing that information now as somebody and I'm jumping ahead and we're going to get back to the origin story of Fireflies. Um, I mean, we're talking multiple, multiple rounds at Microsoft. There's a lot of chatter out there, especially in the last couple of years, being a, you know, a candidate driven market, candidate experience, the job experience of tightening up that process. But would you say that those that that many rounds, how many rounds we'll call it like at least five, right, um, yeah. were necessary for a for you to make a decision and B, on the other side, equally for the company to have proper due diligence, you know, to make that hiring decision. Yeah. And Microsoft seasoned veterans in this, and right. they probably interviewed thousands and thousands of people. Um, and uh, the recruiters are quite busy. So I had to kind of go through, I didn't go through like a conventional, like usually if you get through as a referral, usually you stand higher. College recruiting is usually intense because you're mm. competing with hundreds of other kids on campus. Um, at Penn specifically, a lot of the people that they took were people that were, you know, that we had this program called M&T, uh, Management and Technology, people that are studying business and engineering at Penn, and they're like the cream of the crop, right? M&T mm -hmm. is what it's called. Uh, and so usually those are the people that are getting the, these PM roles, because it's not like your conventional uh, software engineering role, you're a product manager. And Microsoft was one of the first uh, companies to start this thing saying, hey, let's take an undergrad or new grad and teach them how to be a product manager, right? And usually in the past, you had to like have five, 10 years of experience before getting to that like role as a PM. So they started this program and then other companies started to follow, right? Facebook and Google have an APM program, associate product manager programs. So already you're going into a position of where there is responsibility um, and you have to be multidimensional, right? You have to be well-rounded. You can't just be a Pro, like an engineering or design type person, multifaceted, absolutely person that like mm -hmm. talks uh, high level BS. You have to know like your stuff, and I think the Microsoft PM roles, at least when I was interviewing, were far more technical because their PMs they expected their PMs to have been engineers. There's or, a baseline, right? There's yeah. table, there's table setter just to even there's have table, the conversation. And you're working on more technical problems. Like the, when I joined the group that I was in, I was like holy crap, this is overwhelming. This is crazy uh, because um, a lot of this, because we were doing like deep level, like building analytics engines uh, and all of these sort of stuff. And I was like, wow, like this is very technical uh, a role. Like not just any random person would do it. You have to have like a, you know, computer science type background. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty multifaceted. 
Hey, everybody. First, I'd like to thank you all for spending time with me and my guest on the podcast. This show is my canvas to showcase amazing people from the world of recruiting, entrepreneurship, and leadership, and unpack their career journeys for everyone to learn from. But this show is also a business generator for me, as well as creating thought leadership and endless amazing content. And I've taken what I've learned in the past three years and over 200 recorded and 100 live shows and distilled it down into a digital playbook that I call the Pause Course. Now you could learn how I build, manage, and produce the podcast and use it to drive real business development and relationships. Today, I'm sharing all of my secrets behind the podcast, and you can get it all at thepausecourse.com. This course is for anyone, whether you're starting out or an advanced podcaster using it for B2B, a B2C, it's filled with all of my insights, learnings, tips, tricks, and templates. So get it now at thepausecourse.com and learn all my secrets. Thanks. So correct me if I'm wrong, you were on the office product, right? Yes, I was in office. Yep. Right. So at what point, because you were in Microsoft for too long before Firefly, like, tell us the origin story. Was there a specific problem that you saw with the office suite that triggered this idea? And and like part B on that one was like, and I'm sure you'll get there with the story. Like, was it always your intention to go out on your own? Yeah. So both of those were, you know, expect the unexpected is what I always believe. So mm-hmm. the reason I had a fantastic time at Microsoft, I got promoted within the first eight months that I was there, eight, nine months that I was there within the year. Um, and which I heard was rare and was just a great opportunity in general to, to be there. And I really enjoyed my time there. Uh, I got used to my work. I enjoyed like being around my colleagues. And the only reason I had left was like I got an opportunity to go to graduate school at Cambridge. And as a kid, I've always wanted to go to London um, and experience going to a school uh, like that. So that yeah. was a really interesting opportunity. So after my time you know, at Microsoft, I basically told my manager I have this grad school opportunity I see myself finishing this and then potentially coming back. Um, So I hadn't actually thought about going headfirst into doing a startup. It was usually, I had two months uh, before uh, graduate school started at Cambridge. And so I flew over to Boston um, and MIT where one of my friends was graduating. And I decided to just hang out for the summer. I uh, said, hey, you know, you're graduating. Let's just, let's hang out. Um, And we ended up, uh, there was a really nice VC that said, hey, you can use our office space here. Um, near Seaport. It was really beautiful office space. There's no one in there. You guys can work. So there was a whiteboard. There was a conference room. A little bit of an incubator going on there. <laughs> yeah. So it was it was great. We were the first uh, people in there because they had just started this like VC firm on the East Coast. So very nice people. Along the way, I have to say that there have been many people uh, that have been very kind to us and that have encouraged our dream. So that was really like the the stirring point, right? So we'd go into the office every day. We'd like just be working on different ideas. And my co-founder, Sam, uh, we had worked on many different things while in college. So hackathons, different projects. So you knew Sam, you knew Sam from college? I did know Sam from did- college. We went to different schools. He went to MIT. I went to Penn. Right, during your college uh, time. We met through mutual friends. And uh, we used to work on projects remotely. Like every evening, we'd uh, go on like a video conferencing. Um, and then we just like, collaborate. So I actually worked with Sam for two years before I ever even met him in person. And that's and that's and that's a critical point, too, because I wanted to ask, you you know, because I think there's so much learning. And A, does everybody need to have a co-founder? And B, when you when you are looking for a co-founder, like what is it about Sam? That is is it what I hear from when I talk to founders or co-founders, it's the complementary skill sets, attitudes and approaches and not. Yes, alignment on vision, alignment on certain things operationally, but having opposing viewpoints is really beneficial. 
I would say, yeah, we were more similar in, in a sense uh, where there were actually a lot of similarities that uh, helped uh, drive that um, in the early days. So, for example, like I'm uh, Sam and I are both product engineering oriented. Um, we didn't have like your typical sales and marketing experience that, um, you know, usually you'll have this business guy and then you'll have this like engineering guy. So in, in our case, you know, we are very much invested in building product and making sure we build something that people can buy without having to talk to a salesperson, right? When you think about business software um, today, you just go in, you swipe your credit card and you you purchase Fireflies. That's how right. it works, right? So that was a really, really... Um, you know, interesting thing. So our values, right? Because when we looked at the business space, there's a lot of people that had really crummy products and uh, they would just like throw sales at you. Like if you go to a SaaS product and you're trying to buy it, they say you can't even test or try the product out. You have to talk to a salesperson first, right? So we said, we are not going to be that. That's not going to be our DNA. Our DNA is going to be product first um, and we're going to just focus on really good engineering. So those were the things that were really good. I would say I was more on the conservative side of the technology curve because I'm more skeptical. Like there are things that I don't believe at face value until I really see it and I dig it. Like why? Uh, dig into it. Uh, so it's just like, hey, this technology is going to be this good or transcription is going to be this accurate uh, so, in the next 18 months. Yeah. So so why Fireflies? Where, where, where was the consumer need for this? Yeah. So there weren't any specific uh, products that I worked on at Microsoft that inspired me to start uh, Fireflies. It was more of my own work experience, right? One is we spend a lot of time in meetings, especially at a larger corporation like Microsoft. The natural thing is say, add that to my calendar. We'll set up a meeting next week. That's that's usually the default way to communicate. Um, so there was just so much meeting, so many meetings, especially as a PM. You're in like it's, it's five, meetings. six meetings a day. Uh, it gets like you're talking to Process customers. Process paralysis, everyone out there. This is it. <laughs> so you're talking to so many people, uh, customers, uh, engineers, uh, your managers are just trying to get people on the same page. And I said, there needs to be a better way to do this. And I can't like keep track of all of this stuff and then a thousand emails every day. So that actually inspired me to say like, okay, where do we spend a lot of time and how can we automate, you know, the busy work around that so that I can focus on the things that add value, right? Like I want to focus on the design, the thinking, the engineering, not like the administrative stuff. So that's what inspired us to say like, okay, let's look at the voice space, right? If I'm going to have a meeting and I walk out of that room, one hour later, I'm going to forget everything that uh, that was said there. And if, you, and if you're taking notes the whole time, you're not always focused on what people are saying. Yes. Or a lot of times people are on their phone, like checking their emails. So see, these meetings are extremely expensive, right? You take all these execs and you put them in meetings. You know, one hour meeting is worth like $10,000, right? At the corporate level. They pause on that for a second because I think that's something that I, I've talked about before too. And, and we say, how much money is in this meeting? And I've been talking about it for years too. All these bullshit meetings, even going back to you know the the early two thousands when I when I went into the workforce, I'm like, there's so many people sitting here that either don't need to be here, aren't contributing, have no need, aren't adding value, and just wasting time and money. And a lot of time we're billing clients too for it. So it's like, let let's figure out how do we really get an ROI in this and have actionable items coming out of it now correct me if I'm wrong, there's other products on the market. How are you going to stand out? How does this product stand out than other products out there? Yeah. Um, so one thing I, I will say um, to your point is there are many people who enjoy having meetings for the sake of having meetings. Uh, <laughs> could have been an email, like, could have been a text. Yeah. Yeah. The process of it. So we, that's like something I absolutely uh, did not like, and I wanted to change that culture. So with Fireflies, we wanted to build a product where anyone can have their own assistant that comes in and takes notes for them, right? An AI assistant that joins your meetings, transcribes all of that. So 
first one was like the technology curve, right? Like I was more skeptical, like, can this technology actually get better? And Sam was much more optimistic in that regard saying, hey, it's, it's like 80% when we're starting, but I believe it'll be 95%, um, you know, in the next couple of years. And here's some things that we can do. So that also itself is a technology barrier that you're trying to break. How do you build something accurate? And then how do you build this at scale? Like Fireflies today mm-hmm. joins, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of uh, meetings, all right, where it's a participant on the meeting. So the way our system works is um, when your Zoom call starts, an AI note taker joins as a participant. It's a bot. Uh, mm-hmm. And then it takes uh, the notes for you while the meeting is going on. How do you scale that up in real time to so many people and process crazy volume? So initially, you're starting with cool technology. Now you need to build like scale. Like Think about like Facebook uh, or Instagram or well, WhatsApp. Like When you're sending those billions and billions of messages, how do you scale that? That's incredibly difficult. So we're like working on voice, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to have the same challenges like we're doing voice now we're also doing video um and then we're doing transcription huge huge payloads of data um it's almost like think about like a twitch stream right you're like having constant like people like all the time on it like now we're doing that for business users so Mm -hmm. the bar is even higher because reliability is even 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 crazier so that was a definitely a crazy crazy experience so what was what was one of those first mistakes or maybe it was an assumption that you guys made that you learned the hard way in building a business I mean, yeah, and, well, it's not a mistake, but it's you have it's a mistake you have to make at that time to realize. So one is in the early days, you're going to just try to throw things together to move as quickly as possible. So you may use like tools and other stuff that are expensive, uh, might break. So you are duct taping a lot of different pieces together to just see if the prototype will work, right? Um, I think today, though, the bar is a lot higher for a minimum viable product. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can duct tape something, get feedback, but do not go to product with the duct tape thing. It worked in the past, by the way. I, I read about um, an MV- other- you could you could duct tape an MVP. Yes, but there are some companies in the past where they would duct tape it, duct tape it for Ship ten it. years, uh, and then it would constantly add a lot of technology debt, uh, make it harder and harder to make changes. Right. So, analogy I like to say is you should engineer it properly once you know this is what you're going to do it. So actually go back, build it from scratch, which we've done twice at Fireflies. Um, Because otherwise, what's going to happen when it's live is um, you're going to need to fix a pipe leak, but you're not allowed to turn off the water. That's how hard it is if you're you're doing that. Yeah. Clip, timestamp, clip. We're putting this one out there. Um, I heard in an interview you gave early on at which point you were more focused on adoption than monetization. Let's unpack that one a little bit for everyone out there. Yeah. uh, Yeah. In the early days, you have to like realize and ask yourself, why do people even care about this? Right. And why are people going to give me the time of day to want to use a service like this? So you had to learn about what people care about. Like attention is everything, right? Like it's something that people have to care about using. So they see this note taker on the meetings. Um, okay, they're seeing this transcript, but how do you add value to that transcript? No one's going to go through a 20-page transcript. So how can we allow someone to go through a one-hour meeting or transcript in five minutes and find all the information that they need? So we started building um, different features and functionality. Like you can press a button and Fireflies will suggest all the action items from the meeting. Or you press another button, it'll show you all the questions that were asked by Adam on the meeting. Right. It can even tell me how much I spoke on that meeting versus how much Adam spoke. It'll tell me where, which parts of the call had negative sentiment or positive sentiment. So now by filtering like and scanning through, right, I can go through that entire meeting uh, and know the parts that I care about. Right. I can go through it at 2x speed. I can let's say there's something that was really interesting, right? Like that you just said. 
I can go highlight that segment of the transcript and say, create a sound bite. So it's a feature request or like something that mm -hmm. was like an amazing little snippet. Now I can go just share that 30 second clip rather than share the entire meeting with my team. I love it. And how good is this technology also for the recruitment process too? If I'm talking to a candidate and having that screen with them, and now I want to go to the hiring manager and say, hey, I talked to Chris, here's something that stood out and you could actually hear that clip and I could earmark it versus just taking my word for it. Complete side note, I don't even have this question out there. Um, is this like legal evidence? Is there any kind of legal ramifications? Like if we have a conversation that this transcript could get could hold up in court? I'm just curious. Yeah, so I don't know about the holding up in court part, uh, but what I do know is you have to follow the same call compliance uh, rules that other pro products have. So for example, when you're you recording in Zoom, yeah, you'll, you'll, it'll say like, hey, I'm recording this. Usually the standard process is uh, different states will have different things. Some states you don't have to get two-party consent. Other, p other states you do. We generally recommend that. Like, hey, you know, when you call up customer support, right? And they say this call is being recorded for quality assurance. Mm -hmm. Like the same way, just let the people know um, that you're using Fireflies to record and transcribe and take notes and offer to share the notes afterwards if it's going to be helpful for them too. And if not, you can kick Fireflies out of the meeting. So you want it if to If you want to have sure an off-the-record conversation, you kick the bot yeah. out. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what happens during a live meeting. It's like, hey, we're going to go into a part that's private. Let's remove Fireflies from the meeting for this part of the call. Right. So consent is everything. Consent's, uh, you know, that's important uh, when it comes to call recording. But the funniest thing is this meeting compliance thing has turned into a huge viral um, opportunity for us because all of these people are, you know, bringing up fireflies mm -hmm. on the call. Hey, by the way, I have fireflies or someone will says, Hey, what's this AI note taker? So it starts a conversation oh, and that conversation gives us availability, like, you know, awareness. And I was just reading like a uh, survey that a customer sent and said, Hey, you really need to start a referral or affiliate program because I feel like I've sold more fireflies on my <laughs> demos than my own product. Right, uh, I do that with I my stuff all every, the time. I everyone, and I probably got you 50 people just using Fireflies through me, and I, I would like to get uh, on this Something. affiliate program. And I'm like, all right, we need to start an affiliate program, I guess. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of funny too, and I can only, I mean, the data has to be encrypted on the back end too, like you're just collecting so much data, and some of it's proprietary and some serious conversations going on. I mean, there has to be a ton of, of data security on the back end, right? Yeah, there is a lot more like we're SOC 2 compliant now um, and we're also just scaling up so that we can support larger and larger businesses, um, enterprises. Uh, there's, you know, we have to think about security at every level um, of building new features, the implications of that. Also, as we have larger teams using it, access controls access. and privacy. So like maybe I don't want someone else on the team to listen to a recruiting interview I had, right? Uh, because it's private. So I yeah, want to put it be for their job. Channel. Yeah, I want to <laughs> put it in a private channel. Uh, so that uh, other people, uh, only the HR team has access to it. So similar There's to Slack lot. and uh, Dropbox and all these other other platforms, uh, privacy access management is becoming a bigger thing uh, as the team sizes grow. Krish, let me ask you this, how many how many folks do you have full time right now? We have about uh, almost 100 people, like, I would say like wow. 90 or so. That's crazy. And, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, mostly distributed remote. Yeah, we're a hundred percent remote company, like from origins. This was even before the pandemic. This is just something we chose again, contrarian views, right? We said like, let's not, uh, be a sales first company. Let's be a product first company. Mm -hmm. We don't have to only hire in Silicon Valley. We can hire globally and we can build a globally distributed team. And in fact, Fireflies is more valuable for, uh, distributed companies. And actually we go into the pandemic. That's exactly what happened. So for us, we didn't have to really change much of our operations. Uh, in fact, it just made it more front and center. So we're, we're around 
1500 now. Yeah. So, but what, are, but what are some of the challenges, you know, when you have folks in different time zones all around the world, how do you keep everyone on, on the, on the same page in a, with a global remote organization? What are, what, what are some of those tricks or yeah, best so practices? Time zone Sorry, not even yeah. Time zone overlap is really important. Um, so we are a 24 seven operations, meaning Fireflies is working 24 seven. And uh, so there is some uh, time zone overlap between handoffs between engineers on the same team. Uh, every team we try to get um, uh, overlap. It also helps us build a global product from day one so that people in other countries can also use Fireflies. And you get the perspectives of other uh, you know, people, like the diversity, to build a product, right? For example, we were building out some stuff because in the future we want to roll out foreign languages. Right now we support English transcription. That was so my we question. have a teammate who's Portuguese question. and they're like looking at this model and saying, hey, it's actually pretty good. Fireflies is doing pretty well for Portuguese. Like let's let's incorporate that language model, um, you know? So there's this amazing stuff that you get with culture and diversity uh, when you bring people around uh, all different parts of the world. Well, I mean, think about that technology for your own team. I mean, exactly to that point, like somebody's native Portuguese speaker, maybe their English isn't so well, and you're having a big meeting with with English speakers, and then they could take that and that, the translation from it, the output of the meeting, and they could digest it. I mean, the communication improvement, I mean, th- this this is fantastic. What has been you know, the biggest challenge as a founder and a leader with scaling? The biggest challenge is you have to learn to let go of your Legos. Uh, you can't do all the building <laughs> blocks yourself. Um, you know, being a, you can be a perfectionist, but you have to pick two or three things you want to be a perfectionist at, and you have to scale up your hiring and trust. Right at the end of the day, when hiring great people, it comes down to trust. Like, are you going to trust them to do a better job than you? Right, that's ultimately the thing. And when you're giving someone the Lego blocks. Uh, it starts with that trust. The moment you start to micromanage, that's when you realize that there's a lack of trust. And usually, right, there was something that uh, one of Elon's um, employees also said, like, you know, someone is about to uh, be fired or let go at uh, Tesla if Elon is having to, like, handhold them and micromanage every decision that that's being made, right? Because that's like a lack of trust and it's right. only going to go down. So it's hard to recover from that. So I think um, starts with hiring. And also raising the bar, right? Like you might have started saying, okay, we're going to take seven out of 10. Uh, that's okay. Early days, you just need people like whoever want, believes in the mission, can we come in? And now you raise the bar and the next bar is eight out of 10. You want a nine out of 10. You want a 10 out of 10. Like, so you keep raising the bar on yourself uh, and also the new hires. And then that instills that culture to everyone to raise their game. So yeah, Fantastic. hiring, culture, scaling, delegating, um, you need that in order because you can't be at a hundred different places. I love it. And and I'm not going to sit here and ask what the, you know, three, five, 10 year plan is, but you know, what, what is that next kind of milestone uh, for you professionally and building out fireflies? Yeah, for us, uh, we've had the fortune of being able to serve 60,000 plus different companies. Um, we want to keep scaling that. Uh, we want to make fireflies more integral to the different systems that people use every day. Uh, we're going to do a couple big things this uh, in the coming year. One is we're going to support multi-language so that we can really support global users. Uh, so multiple foreign languages, Spanish, French, all of that is on the roadmap. Uh, we're working on really becoming a collaborative platform because as more people use Fireflies, I want them to not even have to wait till the after the meeting to do all of the sharing and workflows. During the meeting itself, like how can you get work done? How can you push things or your action items? Uh, like by the time I leave the meeting, can I have like all the things that I need to do, all the kickoffs that I need to do afterwards done? So we were trying to make it a more collaborative and um, real-time uh, product for you guys. 
I love it. And I, w- and I wish you best of luck. I'm going to check it out for myself and, and my teams and my clients as well there too. So let's bring it home here. Um, Chris, this, this, this show is my masterclass. I mean, I literally created my own masterclass, having the opportunity to have conversations with such smart and accomplished folks like yourself. What is the single greatest piece of advice you've ever received that you take action on every single day of your life? So the best advice that I've ever gotten is when you're worried about something, um, it's only going to get more if you don't take action. So the most important thing is just start, right? Even if the problem uh, seems impossible, start the most important thing you need to at that point in time, right? Whether it's just getting in contact with the person, sending an email, or starting to look at the analytics, like wherever the problem is, the more you dwell on it, the more you let it sit in the back of your mind, the more headspace it's going to take. Whereas if you know there's going to be a problem or a potential for a problem to occur, start having that conversation early, be proactive, um, and you will then realize it, it is uh, not an insurmountable thing. You can actually get over it and you'll realize more often than not uh, to enjoy dealing with those challenges. So taking that first step, no matter how small it is, and then making that a habit right? Consistency. Because usually we like, all of us like to, you know, set things off for the side. I'll take care of it after the weekend, um, can procrastinate. I got, I'll have like two minutes, you know, two hours before the presentation to prepare. Just take the first step. Just do the first two slides, right? Just no one's asking you to finish all 20 slides. <clears throat> um, and then that naturally you will get into the flow. That's what we're talking about, folks. Real actionable advice here. And Chris, last but not least, you look back on your life and career, um, and there's had to be those tough times. There had to be those times where you were clawing and trying to figure things out, and you had to reach down deep inside and harness that inner tenacity to pull yourself forward. And on the flip side, when you want to show gratitude, appreciation for your success, what you're building, this legacy that you're building uh, for yourself and your family, what is your compass? What keeps you focused? Chris, what is your North Star in life? Yeah, so I believe that success is rented. It's not automatically owned. And if you take your uh, eye off the ball, uh, you will lose it. So you are paying your dues every day in terms of the work that you are putting in. And for me, like the compass that drives what I do and everything that I think about is how can I build something that actually makes people's lives easier? Because that's if you can do that, you will get attention. You will get admiration, you will get people talking about you and you will also be able to monetize. But it's about like, how can I build something that is essential, right? Like how I want to build something that's a painkiller and not like a vitamin. Like I need something that's going to actually like change people's lives. And like, I think that if you start optimizing for impact, all of the other stuff, money, revenue, um, attention, all the other stuff will come follow naturally. So optimize for impact. This has been fantastic, fantastic conversation. So much gold, so, so much wisdom here. Um, Krish, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me and hanging out with me for one moment. Absolutely, Adam. Loved it. <laughs> Good stuff. And everyone, if you want to find out more, please go to fireflies.ai. I'm going to link it up in the show notes. Everyone can check it out there. Krish, where could folks find you? Where could they connect with you? Where could they learn more? Yeah, so we're on Twitter. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Instagram. Uh, feel free to connect with, uh, so I have my own public uh uh, IG, which is Chris Ramanini. And then you can also find us at Fireflies AI on Twitter or on LinkedIn. Good stuff. This is what the show was all about. Actionable advice from people who are doing it in the moment. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. And everyone listening at home, thank you so much for spending your time with Chris and I. I know how valuable your time is. If this episode resonated with you, if you learned something, 
Sharing means caring. If you have any questions, email me, adam at nhptalentgroup.com. I'll put you in touch with Christian and his team if you got questions there. Follow us on all the social media channels. You know where it is, thepodcast.com. Remember, take care of each other, look out for one another, and catch us next week for another great episode of The Podcast. Take care, everybody. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode soon, jam-packed with more incredible humans. Thank you for listening, subscribing, and sharing. To join the conversation, search The Podcast on LinkedIn. And to catch up on past episodes and more info, please visit www.thepausecast.com.